Welcome to Thinking Deeply by Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome back both Victoria Morris and Neil Almond onto the podcast, this time to talk about all things primary history. If you enjoyed their thoughts on primary geography, then you're going to love this one. So there's so much to take away that the hard part will be finding space for all of your notes. Before we get started, I'd once again like to ask for a small favour, because one of the ways to help ensure this podcast reaches the many, many teachers not using social media is to leave a review wherever you're listening. It should only take a second, and it would mean so much to know that these interviews were reaching those they can help. And as a thank you, one reviewer will be chosen at random during episode eight of season two and receive signed copies of Thinking David by Primary Mathematics, The Art and Science of Primary Reading, 100 Ideas for Primary Teachers, Maths, and the Research Aid Guide to Curriculum. But without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary history education. Excellent. And um, so, Neil and Victoria, it's good to have you back. Good to see you again. Good to be back. So I think we can just jump straight in now that we're all familiar with um, who everyone is and where we're coming from. Um, so I think possibly the only thing that you guys are more passionate and knowledgeable about than geography is history at primary level. So tell me, why is it important at our phase of schooling? So I just looked at the, the preamble to the national curriculum and there's an explanation of why history is important in there. So um, it says about um, understanding the complexity of people's lives, the process of change, diversity of societies and relationships, as well as their own identity. So I think like, I'm not going to try and restate that. I think that's a good explanation of why it's important there. Yeah, similar to Victoria, when um, I saw the question, I go back to the, uh, you know, the purpose of study in the national curriculum and all the reasons why history is important at primary level, you know, are, um, you know, written down very well, I think, in that um, preamble. Um, again, going back to, as I said, on um, uh, the Geography podcast, you know, young children are quite uh, egotistical. Um, you know, they find it difficult to see things beyond the self. Um, and so I think history is important at primary because it makes them understand how we got to the point where we can actually focus on the self. Um, thinking particularly, you know, the um, transition from uh, nomadic hunter-gatherers where, you know, we were kind of living to survive and, you know, it was the, the all about the tribe and the group mentality as opposed to now, you know, when they started to develop um, agriculture and irrigation, we went, you know, that transition between a uh, uh, you know, um, survive, uh, living to survive to thriving and, you know, being able to give the, you know, humanity that greatest commodity of all things time to you know, focus on the self. And obviously, you know, through that society improved as well. But I think it's uh, particularly powerful for children understanding how it is that we're lucky that we can even think about the self and not thinking about the tribe. And maybe that's gone too far the other way, but that's uh, an ethics mm -hmm. debate, I think, for for another time. Well, I was kind of thinking, like, how's how's the how is this different from his compared to the geography for history? And I came up, but I don't know what you think of it, Neil. But I came up with geography is basically like understanding how does the world work, what is it like, and how does it work, and then history is why. Yeah, I love that distinction. That's yeah. really nice. There's more of an element of story and imagination in history, whereas 
geography's process, isn't it? The yeah. More to do with imagination in history and developing curious curiosity and storytelling. I just say like geography process. It's a lot more kind of data heavy kind of subject where the, our level of certainty is so much more sure mm. as to you know yeah. how we the continents are the way that they are right now. Obviously, those things still change, but you know when it comes to history, teaching history as certainty as fact. Yes, there are some things that we can do, and obviously, you know, 200, 300 years from now, it'll be a lot easier because we've got little cameras to document all of this stuff. But you know, a lot of it is you know, interpretations of what little there actually is there. And so, as you say, imagination and that sense of um, uncertainty, I think is an incredibly important uh, difference between the two subjects as well. It, it seems in, in my experience that history is probably the one that most teachers understand the importance of a little bit more than geography say and and it's probably very close to the core subjects in terms of people's passion for it. Do you think that's because of the sense of, of narrative and the fact that people can relate to it or do you think there are other factors that sort of give it that almost increased status among primary teachers? I think the narrative's more obvious in history. Like stories about people as well, isn't it? Like a specific person and their story, maybe it's more obvious. I think there is an, a sense of narrative in geography, but it might not jump out at you in the same way that you it has to be presented to you in a certain way for it to make sense, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's it's just a more... I think because it is about fundamentally about people, um, it's just far more relatable, I think. Um, whereas, you know, say geography is more those abstract processes, you know, of erosion, um, you know, which for some people, it's neither here nor there. But, you know, thinking of Guy Fawkes is, you know, everyone I think can uh, you know, compare themselves in a way, you know, you know wanting a certain goal and finding a certain way of how to do it and all of that kind of thing. If you guys had to condense your approach to history in a set of guiding principles, what would they be? And are there any marked differences to those we discussed in reference to geography? For key stage two, there isn't, um, for me, that much difference. Um, obviously, the um, curriculum itself is a little bit more Say a little bit more prescriptive. I don't mean prescriptive. There's more content. It gives you more content to cover than um, the geography curriculum, for example. So there's more to go on for there. So obviously, you know, you look at the curriculum uh, as a school. You need to decide where things go, and there needs to be logic behind those decisions. We don't give year four um, the Egyptians just because that's where it's always been. As I say, I think prior to the um, the new Ofsted framework, the most political uh, conversations I think that happened in the uh, staff room was who would get to teach the Victorians or something like that because those were you know oh, it must be in year five because that's where year five have always done it which obviously is not a great reason for doing things. Um, so definitely curriculum, decide on the outcome. Um, for key stage two, you want to link appropriately to the uh, second order concepts of history. Um, quite fortunate in that um, historians, um, there's a greater consensus as to what constitutes history. So the things like um, evident significance, 
change and continuity, similarity and difference. We're quite kind of, as a subject discipline, they're quite content. You know, these are the things that we look at when we do our subjects. Again, you're mapping out that sequence, find that endpoint, decide what that's going to look like. You want to link then to the substantive concepts, um, so things like monarchy, empire, peasantry, all of those things that you can kind of uh, sprinkle in as many um, units as possible, because those are the nice links and the nice threads that you can get um, between different units across year groups um, or within the same year group. Um, and where possible, uh, you know, that's where you can get your meaningful cross-curricular stuff done. Um, Trade, for example, is a really great one that um, you know, transcends history and it lends itself so beautifully as well to geography. So there's that natural link there as to how all that was able to happen. Um, and then as I say, and then you write version one and you walk away from it, you come back to it um, and make any changes. You live it, you teach it, you change, you reflect on it and you change it. For key stage one, and this is going back to something that I kind of mentioned in um, when we did the uh, the quiz edition. Um, and I don't know if maybe Victoria actually knows that this is where my thinking is going, but I think I would, um, if I was uh, an academy um, and I had kind of complete curriculum control and I used those, um, the powers that the government give me, I would actually get rid of the um, history requirements for key stage one and I would make it all about um, story narrative and so actually I would use that as a tool for my um, literacy writing I'd find you know oh you know, it's time for a read aloud right okay we're going to read a historical non-fiction text maybe from the core knowledge website about the Aztecs or whatever it might be and so actually throughout their throughout year one and year two they're hearing just lots and lots of different stories about different periods of history um, and not necessarily going into the depth that the national curriculum kind of puts them in straight away which I think there are merits to it absolutely but I think again if I had full creative control I think that's the way that I would quite like to quite like to look at it. It's interesting because I've written down like there's more of a choice than history because you said you feel like history is more did you say history is more, um, like, what, what word is it, fixed? Yeah, there's more con more content to cover, I feel like, in the history curriculum than um, the geography curriculum. Yeah, I think there's more breadth of content. But then I feel like the geography is more concrete. Like it tells you, teach them about these things. And obviously, there's different contexts you can use for it. But like the history, there's a lot more choice, isn't there? So making the right choices is maybe more important planning a, the history curriculum than geography is more choosing the places that you're going to focus on to teach certain things through and I think the difference in the history the geography it's more you're either going to teach about a process or you're teaching about a particular place isn't it on the whole history you've got that thing of deciding do you teach it as an overview or a depth study like where what overviews do you do and where do you make the depth studies there's a lot more sort of freedom to choose where you do that rather than the geography you get told what places to do on the whole don't you and there's choices to make in between that like you choose which exact place in Europe but you have to pick a region in Europe so I think probably the maybe the history I don't know is it harder to 
pin down exactly what you're going to do. I, I just felt like when I was thinking about it, it's harder to say for the history than the geography. It's like, teach this. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's probably my... Um... Is that what you were saying? Yeah, I don't like to use this about myself. My, my maybe my my expert blindness coming in a little bit there to uh, uh, choices because so yeah, you can get it just says like the Romans and it gives you some non-statutory guidance as to what to do. But you know, okay, it says the Romans in Britain as well, so you've only got about five hundred years to play with. But you know, condensing choosing five hundred years to do in however long you decide to give yourself for that is yeah quite a task if you then don't know anything. About much about the Romans hence why you could then get yeah. people making Roman shields and calling that history which I'm sure we'll go on to later on it's gonna go yeah we're gonna get into that <laughs> do you reckon um because at the minute um there's quite a big conversation around what history and um, you know because obviously we've got the traditional western chronology and um, do you guys find it more difficult because of that changing landscape or you know this is this is just my perception from outside that actually if i were choosing content right now i'd be a bit worried and um, does that come into play at all or is that just me being uh, overthinking things it depends how it's done now, obviously we do have a national curriculum and if you're a la school you have to teach the national curriculum um, there's no way about it um, and that is quite um heavy on the history of the British Isles and kind of uh, typical Western civilization. There are choices um, that you can make within there that kind of does get that um, diversity of approaches um, and the different regions. Um, thinking specifically, um, you have the choice to do um, the Kingdom of Benin, for example, um, which was a, an African um, empire. Um, so you obviously you can make the choice to do that. I think it's one you need to be careful. And I always think, I think my, um, when I've asked and I've kind of helped schools about this, before we make it too tokenistic, I always say, right, let's have a look at what we have here and what you're currently, what we need to do and how we're making sure that we're being representative in that. So um, case in point is the Romans. Um, if you're doing some lessons, obviously we only have to focus on Romans um, in Britain, but it makes sense, I think, to do a couple of lessons about the Roman Empire and how it all came to be and, you know, the Roman army, for example. If you're only showing pictures of the Roman army as white men, that's problematic because the Roman Empire spanned into North Africa and one of the things that um, you could earn Roman citizenship by um, joining the Roman army. I think it was you know, after 17 years, then you got your citizenship. So there were plenty of people of North African origin in the Roman army. Um, and I, so I think getting that across is incredibly important. And I think gives it that um, diversification without it necessarily appearing too tokenistic. Um, and I think we do need to, you know, I don't, I agree in teaching history really, really well. And that means, you know, warts and all. So if you're only um, you know, telling yourself, if you're um, only giving the benefits of uh, the British Empire, um, then that is obviously problematic. And you need to discuss um, those other, um, you know, what people would say, you know, the atrocities of the 
um, empire, and quite rightly so. I think it's probably a subject knowledge issue, isn't it? That you have to have really, really strong subject knowledge to know where it's appropriate to, what's appropriate to include where, basically. I always used to think my history subject knowledge was quite strong, but actually it really isn't. I couldn't have given that example that you just gave. I'd have to do a lot more research myself to be able to address that properly, I think. Yeah, I think because one, um, an, an, another one, a clear example is, um, you know, World War Two and India. Mm. You know, they came to our rescue. And then there's loads of information. There's loads, I think, on the, in the Imperial War Museum, you know, there's whole displays, there's whole um, in, um, page of information on the um, website about you know, the contribution of India um, and particularly Sikhs as well to um, the war efforts. And obviously then you, I don't think you can teach the world wars well if you don't mention that and then also go into it as a result of them, you know, and their assistance, you know, independence followed several years afterwards. So as I say, I think the main place to start is think about what you're teaching and where you can get that diversity where it's so thoroughly deserved. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Victoria, in terms of um, the limitations of our subject knowledge. You know, no one's going to set out to give uh, a sort of diminished or restricted view of, of history. But I think you know, when your historical understanding is the product of your own education, you know, it's very easy for the, the, um, the sort of cycle to continue. And I suppose, in, in your opinion, what's the, what's the single most important aspect of, histor- of history education? That was quite a tricky question, actually, I thought. Um, I went for achieving a sense of a coherent narrative across, like, the whole school. But, yeah, I'm just going to repeat what, I've, what I mean. I'm just going to explain the same thing again. Coming up with a, like, over the child's journey through the school, making sure that they've got that sense of a coherent narrative across all the units they've studied. So when, when you sit down, and we may be jumping ahead to the curriculum later on, and you've got your blank page in front of you, what is it that helps you guide that narrative? You know, where do you, where do you start when you're trying to pinpoint those important points on the journey? For me, I guess it's logic. Just thinking like what makes sense coming before, like based on what came before and what's coming after, and making sure that, that you really think about what's come before when you plan what you're going to teach next and just really having those links with prior learning, making it explicit so that the teacher's always referring to what they learnt and how it links and just really tr- having that thorough knowledge of the, what the child already knows. Yeah, I think I, I agree with Victoria. I think that sense of um, that sense of chronology is quite important. I think I'm... Um, teaching dates I think you know there is a place for that absolutely but if they leave primary school kind of understanding oh okay right so we started the stone age then we went to iron then we went to bronze and then it was the romans and then we had the that kind of same time the vikings and the anglo-saxons and then they went away um they didn't go away but and then um you know um 1066 and then the Norman started and all of that and then obviously there's a, a natural massive break for whatever reason in our kind of chronology of how we teach um, the um, history but then also understanding right well 
ancient Greece kind of fits in and that was happening at the same time around this time and that's why those ideas are kind of all going around at the same time and so they get that sense of chronology and when kind of these civilizations starts to appear I think that kind of puts them on a decent uh, standpoint then for when they go into secondary school but I think also understanding um so understanding really what history is and history isn't just facts about the past, although facts are important to understanding history, it is they understand it's asking those kind of big and answering those kind of big questions, you know, how has this changed or how has the impact of this particular policy or event changed or continued a certain aspect or um, of life or, you know, how was farming and agriculture similar but also different in the civilizations that cropped up uh, you know near rivers and things like that so understanding what it is a, a historian does and having a sense of a chronology of kind of the big civilizations and the periods of English history or British history I think is um, pretty important. Just going back to the narrative as well I'm thinking like if you've learnt about significant figures and maybe not just in history, but other subjects as well, actually understanding where do they fit in, in in the chronology of what's being taught. So I've ended up doing just incidentally with my class because we were listening to music and like trying to fit the composers in with other people that they've learnt about in history and that they know actually when that person wrote that bit of music, this was happening at the same time. So um, my class have learned about Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole. So we've we've linked everything back to what at what point in Florence Nightingale or Mary Seacole's life was this piece of music written and this one and the order. And at my class last year were really good at ordering various composers and Florence Nightingale, Mary Seacole and like things around the Victorian period. Because we just kept we kept coming up to and authors as well. We've we do um, poetry assemblies and reciting poems. And so we, they do Wordsworth. So I was trying to sort of link in with the classic poetry. When, when was that written? And, and um, sort of slot it in with some of the music we listened to and, things, and some of the books we were reading as well were like more classic texts. So The Line of Witch and the Wardrobe, Wind in the Willows, just like when were they written? And they got quite hooked on actually where does this fit in this sequence of all the different authors and composers and poets that we had and linking it back to the history? Because I think there's a danger of them just seeing this figure as some sort of, it's just in a void, isn't it? That they, they've got nothing to link it into. And if you can get them to have that sort of coherent understanding of how does everything fit together, that's probably the, for me, that's like the important thing is, not just seeing things as, oh, we've learned a bit about that and a bit about that, and they've got these sort of separate blobs of stuff. <laughs> that, that, that's on another level. And have you have you blogged about that or written about that? I don't know if I've written about that specific thing, no. I, I reckon you definitely should, because you've almost got this panorama then, don't you? Of, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and I'm really loving the idea of, of connecting those musicians and their, you know, because... I've got a sketchy outline of maybe the last 300 years of classical music in my head, but it takes a lot of reading to get actually somewhere near what the reality is. You know, there's, there's a big chunk that I think, you know, from Mozart to like Mahler is, is a lot closer in my head than it is in, re in real life and stuff, you know? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, and no, I think I think that that's something of immense value, you know. And if you know, I think uh, I reckon if Neil threw in a diagram and you threw in the words, that'd be the, the ultimate blog. <laughs> <laughs> used to amaze me when I threw the names up. I used to keep a list and add names to it, and I used to just throw the names up on the board, and they could actually correctly put them in chronological order. Like oh. whenever I came back to it, they could still do it, and I know it's that that's just like a retrieval it's not an in-depth understanding but they did genuinely understand the sequencing of when those things link together I think that's really useful because whenever I read anything I enjoy reading around history so I'm reading um Hamilton's biography and it's just a useful thing to know around this time Mm. these things were happening um I was reading something about um Mozart yesterday and I I don't really know much about classical composers at all but there was a date in there that I could easily associate with you know 1776 all right so we're around the time of American independence and all of that starting and it just kind of as I say it stops it anchors what you're learning about and kind of stops it from being out in the ether and something else just out there and it's like okay I can kind of see how this kind of mental timeline that I'm kind of building up how that all comes together which I think is you know really powerful yeah I've um I've benefited in a few quizzes when they've asked about Napoleon and certain things happening and then I've obviously got this mental hook of the 1812 overture and I'm all mm-hmm. okay it's, it's not going to be very far from that and then you you know get within 10 years and you know haha <laughs> and, you know, get the points that's awesome and and what is it that schools um, who provide a, a really stellar history often do so well? Um, so I think there is that narrative, there is that coherence um, between all the units um, that are there. And I think that's, it's not easy to do. I think it's easier to do that for history than it might be for geography, but that might just be a, a subject knowledge um, deficit. So it's really kind of easy, I think. Um, and once you start looking at this, civilizations that you have to teach you can see all of those you know really strong links um that appear already um things like uh you know that moving from an agricultural society to, to an agricultural society you know it's such a massive leap in um human development and you know how we got here and it's kind of interesting to you notice oh, okay so that all the most of the ancient civilizations were near rivers Okay, so why was that? Oh, because, you know, they developed irrigation. Why did they develop irrigation? Oh, because they could start farming. Why did they farm? Because they I mean they didn't have to spend all their time out, um, you know, hunting and gathering their food, which meant that they had time to do interesting things. And, you know, once you kind of get that and you see those similarities, you see Greece and go, actually, you know, Greece wasn't exactly like that. They had some farming, but it was more... Um, do a trade because they were right on the Mediterranean. So they had, you know, plenty of fish and they'd go and trade to various other countries within the Mediterranean as well. So I think it's quite an easy one to find those natural links and hooks. And it's one of those ones where if you have a, a knowledge explicit curriculum, it's, it's easier for that year three teacher to go, oh, right, okay, well, that's why you're making me teach about trade because we're then going to understand that um, when we're doing the Egyptians, um, 
Hachip Suit's trade mission um, down the Red Sea was really important because then we can um, contrast that with when the Romans came over to Britain and opened up you know, trade with the whole empire and how the building of, ro- of roads made trade so much easier, which meant that we started getting you know, more things. And you can go back and you can get very nerdy about you know, the Beaker people and how trade started there and how actually we were quite an egalitarian society until these people came around and said, ha, 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 we have this skill that um, none of you guys have, what are you going to give us for it? And how then, you know, capitalism, you know, started to take over and here we are today. Um, so I think it's quite, if you have the subject knowledge and you are nerdy enough like me, um, I think it's quite an easy one to make all of those links to. Um, I think they focus on that chronology so they make sure that chronology is there. And linking back to what Victoria said with the um, uh, you know, composers and bringing in you know, other aspects as well, there's a great um, company, I think they're called Timeline for Schools. And if you have a, a long wall, they will just put a timeline of whatever you want. You can go for as long as you want. So if you have a really kind of knowledge explicit curriculum where you know I'm gonna be in music, you're gonna learn about Mozart and well, you know, Williams, whoever it is that you might want to do, you know, they can incorporate that onto that timeline. So, you know, it's there in front of the kids. And, you know, as you're going past um, on assembly, you can say, oh, you know, right, let's, you know, quick little bit of retrieval practice, kids, as we're on the way, you know, make use of all those kind of learning opportunities. And because you know, you know, it's set, um, it makes it easier, I think, for teachers to get on board and the students as well because you know what to expect things like trade and as you've said are are switched from a nomadic people to an agrarian people are those features that highly effective schools will always include or do they have a range of choice in terms of the sort of the big concepts and the big picture they want to portray i think there is a, a choice but at the same time um, and perhaps, you know, your definition of what you think civilization society is might impact that choice. But I think we'll kind of all agree, or that I think there will probably be some sort of an agreement that, you know, unless you've developed an effective writing system, you're probably not quite there at the point of civilization. And so obviously that's a wonderful thing to look at from a Sumerian cuneiform um, and how they started off and how that um change through um, hieroglyphics and various other um, logographs and you know the rebus principle and how we started to stop using symbology for things because it got a bit confusing and we don't have enough space and our mental capacity to remember all these symbols until we get to some sort of greek latin alphabet so you know i think there are for me personally i think there are a core few that I think we can all agree on that, you know, a civilization will have these things. Um, but then there are certainly other ones that, um, you know, s- scholars regularly argue over. And I think, you know, being in tune with what they're saying. And I actually think it's probably less is more when it comes to that thing. I think I'd rather, th- you know, four or five concepts that do kind of look into all those civilizations that students can come to the end of their schooling and be like, right, I understand the importance of trade. I understand the importance of um, literacy and writing systems and the use of tools 
um, because that enabled us to do all that enabled this society to do this civilization to do ABC it enabled that society to do ABC this one didn't have it they relied on someone else for it and so actually then this happened um, so yeah I think less is more on that and that makes a lot of sense so it, it's it's driven by your definition of civilization and then you and then you run from there yeah so I was thinking inquiry and I guess that goes back to the whole making things coherent as well that um really letting inquiry drive your unit so you're not just teaching a lot of disconnected facts that you've got that sort of inquiry and really thinking about inquiry questions which is quite hard you're not just picking a question for the sake of it but like having really good purposeful inquiries would be something that probably a mark of the, the better history curriculum um and making sure it's led by those um, concepts that are in the preamble to the national curriculum. Um, right, again, that you're not just teaching some facts about it, but you really understand um, those, those sort of different concepts and you're using them to drive the questions. Um, and also like the, looking at the coverage and the, the breadth and depth of the curriculum that, again, you haven't just selected something to meet each bullet point on the national curriculum but you know why have you made where there are choices why have you chosen that particular thing and that there's a really good reasoning behind the choices that have been made I'm just finding it really interesting how comparing what what Neil's response is to mine on this one I feel like my knowledge of I think I've got much more of a narrow knowledge of history so interesting seeing the difference between the way that I the way I approach it because I don't think I mean I don't think I really understood those concepts until quite recently to be honest I don't and I thought I'd always been quite good at history and done quite a lot of history at school and I hadn't really got that it's only listening to a lot of research ed talks and people speaking and Christine Council mentions her history examples and I'm like oh my goodness that's another one I didn't know like write that down research that I don't so it's I think that's probably a mark of the better history curriculum is if you really have that understanding of those historical concepts, because otherwise it is just, oh, this this was an interesting period in history. Here's some things that happened and that's it. And there's no sort of purpose behind it. Yeah. And I think that, that that's one of the reasons why it was absolutely essential that, you know, both of you were answering at the same time because, um, you know, there are lots of ways to come at it, but actually in terms, you know, you're both thinking really, really deeply about um, similar ideas, but but almost with different outcomes at the same time, you know. Um, yeah, so, and, you know, personally, I'm again, I think I liked, you know, I really like history. Um, but did I go half as far as you guys are discussing? Um, probably not. Um, so it, it absolutely fascinates me listening to thinking, Oh, yeah, this this sounds absolutely wonderful. You know, I'd I'd love to be a kid in one of those classes. Never mind a, a teacher. And um, and so, are the pitfalls again like geography, sort of the opposite, or are, is there anything that schools should aim to avoid in terms of their provision of history education? The pitfalls are similar to geography, isn't it? Make sure you're actually teaching history in the history lessons. You're not just doing some fun activities linked to that period of history, or you're not just writing something set in that period but what you're teaching is actually history um and also about covering 
the national curriculum and making sure what you teach like Neil said earlier you don't just teach something about the Romans but look at what it actually asks you to teach about the Romans in the national curriculum and yeah there are choices about how you can do that but you can't just do a few things on mosaics and Roman villas and the army that doesn't cover what it says about Roman Britain in the national curriculum so like really referring back to that so trying to sort of superficially say oh yeah we've done something on the Romans we've done something on the Egyptians we've done something like that's going to be the the things to avoid it's just try and really make sure it's all linked back to exactly what it says in the national curriculum um and the same thing as well I think about going too much into opinions or value judgments on was this right were the, was the person right to do this and that kind of thing it's not really that takes it too much into citizenship and PSHE it's not really about judging what happened it's about looking at why and, and learning about what did happen and people's viewpoints on it but it's not about the children giving their opinion of whether someone was right to do something so I wrote what what I've got is pretty similar to the geography. Certainly some similarities, like not just facts about the past. Um, your history doesn't come from a topic title and your topic title also isn't a ridiculously silly thing that borrowed from horrible histories because I think that the level of, you know, the poor Vikings with having, you know, vicious Vikings, you know, given to them for so long where, you know, there was quite substantial amount of evidence they weren't you know they were don't run they did some very vicious things but to you know um make such a massive generalization i think is um not helpful with those things but i think there are a few other things i was thinking about um that are kind of history specific one of them links from what um kind of victoria said about making sure it doesn't turn into a values or ethics um class and kind of linked from that um, it's the kind of tasks that we can sometimes be asking children to do. It is not appropriate, I think, to ask a year five child to imagine that they are a slave on a slave ship and write a diary entry as if they were, you know, part of the um, at the Atlantic Triangle and they were, you know, going on a journey from that. You know, it's not appropriate. Uh, I'm a bit of a um, stickler for this one, but um, I think writing in role in history is a bit of a no-go for me and it's not something I would personally advocate um, because of the misconceptions that it can um, provide. Um, your average uh, Roman soldier probably couldn't write um, and if he could write he's unlikely to be writing a diary entry. There were some so you know I'm saying you know there might be some space for it you know, certainly you know, um, the Vindalonda scrolls, for example, are a letter uh, from someone who was on the wall, um, Hadrian's wall, writing back to um, Rome. So if you were looking at that specific person, fine, but to do it as a kind of generic, oh, and I imagine you crossed, you know, into um, Scotland as a Roman soldier and now write back, I don't necessarily think it's appropriate. And kind of my last one I would avoid is, um, I just wrote this down very quickly and I kind of don't know if it's an official um, title for what it's called, but like an artifact first approach where you think, oh, I have an amazing artifact here. Um, and 
I'm going to kind of give children the time to explore that and the history will kind of come from um, that. I think we used, we need to you do it the other way around where actually the artifact um, um, is used to strengthen our historic argument, not as a starting point for history. So those would kind of be my no-goes, I think. The point as well actually about um, trips, if you're going to go on a trip, it's actually often more useful to go on the trip towards the end of the topic and the children know things about it already. Um, and same with artefacts actually, because I've been on a museum trip before where they were showing artefacts and asking the children to work out what they were. I mean, I didn't have a clue what they were. So that it's not really helpful to, to do that. If you don't have sufficient knowledge, you can't work out what the things were for or you work out something that actually turns out to be wrong. So it's actually better to have, if you've taught the children about those specific objects before and then you show them the real thing, they can recognise it and link it to what they've learned. But just giving a, a child an artefact and asking them to work out what it is, it's not... You're just going to waste a lot of time getting a lot of wrong guesses, I think. Yeah, I think it's the same for anyone. The more you know about something, the more you appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, and I'm sure everyone's got children to write and roll at some point in their careers. Um, but but the, the argument against it is pretty strong, and, and particularly the examples you've given, Neil. Um, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense at all, really, especially when there's so much rich history to teach. You know, spending time... That we don't have necessarily in a literacy lesson and a poorly advised literacy lesson is um yeah i i, I now can't see any way that i could justify it at all <laughs> it's actually incredibly hard to write accurately about the past it's so so hard there's so many details that if you when i i'm sure i have got children to do that in the past and when i've done it you then you then sort of get bogged down in as they're writing they're asking you about all these little details or you read it and you realise they put some totally historically thing in there because they just don't know the amount of detail needed to do it properly. I just don't think that children can really have, like they can't have the, the depth of knowledge of what, what it was like at that time. So, I mean, it can be quite useful to explore would they have had this or not, but actually getting them to write it, you're going to end up getting a lot of pieces writing that's not... It's just not really accurate either. Yeah, yeah, and I think that leads back to kind of the change that I think is maybe slowly happening, which is where um, the foundation subjects were traditionally just seen as a way to get more extended writing from the the English side of things. So whereas you know we weren't too fussed whether um, someone re was writing the story of a uh, uh, Remus and Romulus but they then took out their iPad as long as they were using the right, um, you know, the, the literacy, the lit, the writing features that we wanted were in there. So we could go to a moderator and be like, well, look, you know, they're using, uh, you know, so they got their, you know, they got their subordinate clause with an omitted relative pronoun in there. So, um, yeah. And I think the content has to come, the content of the subject has to come first for me. I think you can, I actually have had this written down for the, previous question I didn't say it I think you can get really high quality writing from history but it's just about the choice of task isn't it yeah. so you can get really good writing evidence in year six from your history if you're writing an essay at the end of your 
topic and it's like non-fiction writing a comparison I, I when I was in year six I used to do a lot of comparison writing actually probably based on comparing books but it would work in history as well and it used to be some of the best evidence that I had that wasn't actually written as a piece of writing it was actually based on something else but just then if you've got the comparison then there's opportunities for really good um, sentence structures and conjunctions and all those features that you're looking for that you can get evidence of those things and it's actually a purposeful piece of non-fiction writing is actually often better than those sorts of writing in role type tasks anyway so if you want narrative evidence it's better to just focus on writing a really good story and then the writing you get through the history make it non-fiction writing using the content that they've learned then that's a really great mm. way of getting writing distinction isn't it between you know you're writing about history versus writing stories within a historical mm. period like there are some great stories that are written in um, you know based on a historical period and it's actually us being able to work out um, you know the accuracies versus the authorial kind of flair that certain authors use to make their stories worthwhile mm. yeah i saw i saw andrew percival talking about his, his school doing essay writing um, on Twitter recently, and I thought, oh, no, Holly, this is a direction I want to know more about. Um, and so just as you guys are talking about that, um, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and like I think I've said before, I'm lucky enough to work with Jack Harker and see his planning process in, in mm. history. And there, he has to cut a whole lot of what he wants to include in his Romans. Um, like he does this wonderful sequence where he goes from Celtic Britain to the Romans, um, over the cross of maybe for the first 14 weeks of the 16 weeks of the year um, mm -hmm. and if he were to he doesn't have enough time for half the stuff he wants to have in there if he were to spend his time doing writing lessons at the same time you know it, 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 those children wouldn't be given as, as high quality an opportunity as um, as they do at the minute you know so I, yeah. I, I totally see where you're coming from um, when we do essays we we allocate a bit of time and our English lessons to write the essay after they finish the history learning. And I think people hear the word essay and, and think it's some sort of boring, dry. Children actually love writing essays. Like my class are excited about writing the essay. They really want to write it. And we, we got interrupted from writing one last year because of lockdown. And they were so upset that because they, they know that they know the knowledge and they just really want to be able to do that piece of writing. They're so proud of themselves because they've got so much to say. I think it is, if you can, you don't have to call it essays, but if you can do something similar to that and really allocate that literacy time so you get really good quality writing, you're using what they know. The, the children really love that. Um, it's, it's a beautiful form as well. You know, because when thinking about conversations with Neil about the ascent of man and how it's essentially essay as TV, you know, where he's done, yeah. you know, quite a few, you know, consecutive essays and they build up over time and stuff. And I think it's not only is it a really useful skill, but it's a really good form of expression in terms of, you know, like you say, with history being about the why, you know, you can express what you think the why is and stuff. Yeah. So that, that's really clear. And so if anyone wants to improve their teaching of history, where are they going to, you know, I think obviously your blogs um, are probably the best starting point. Where are they going for their, to sort of develop their knowledge of um, of their craft in this respect? 
Shall I go? So I think for me, it was quite a difficult one because there are so many places where you um, you can go. So obviously, you know, and I'll talk about these um, later on. There is the History Association for primary, which I, I think is particularly good. Um, there are um, there's a particular paper that I really like, and I think it goes back to um, that idea of how that source sources is done in um, primary schools. So it's called Primary Sources in History, Breaking Through the Myths. And it's um, written by someone called um, Keith Barton, who's, I think he's Aust Australian and he's a history educator out there. And he kind of goes through actually in what is elementary schools out there, you know, these are some bad uses of um, primary sources. And I think for teachers who aren't well versed, you know, we're not historians, we're not professional historians, we don't necessarily know how to do these things properly. And, you know, we're not taught these things. And it's not something that we should, you know, we're expected to know, but I think it's a, a kind of a useful, he provides a useful list of kind of um, do's and don'ts as to how we might kind of simplify this. And I know if you talk to secondary school um, teachers on Twitter, they'll actually tell us don't do any source work because actually the amount of misconceptions that we do, that we kind of inadvertently provide with regards to sourcing takes them a lot of time to um, unpick and sort out later on. So I kind of think if there was one um, paper kind of just on history, I'd want people to read, it would be um, this one, Breaking Through the Myths of um, Primary Sources in History. Um, just very quickly, he just outlines the kind of the seven myths um, that there are, which are um, primary sources are more reliable than secondary sources. Uh, myth two, primary sources can be read as arguments about the past. Myth three, historians use a sourcing heuristic to evaluate bias and reliability, which I know is the big one that the secondary school teachers really kind of get upset about. <laughs> because um, we always go, oh, who wrote it? Goebbels, so therefore it must be biased. It's like, well, it's not quite as simple as that. Um, myth four, using primary sources um, engages students in authentic historical inquiry. So that, again, kind of goes back to what I said, some, you know, some bad um, teach um, history curriculum might do is they use that primary source as a way to think, you know, all oh, right, you're being a, an historian now, which I think does more damage than good. Um, myth five was that students can build up an understanding of the past just through primary resource um, sources. Um, and um, myth six, sorry, there's only six of them. Um, sources can be classified as primary or secondary. And he kind of looks very kind of carefully at what that means and how it all depends whether, um, you know, what the inquiry question might be will depend whether a source is primary or secondary, depending on the role of that inquiry question. Um, takes. Um, quite usefully then, he then provides um, a list of some things that um, sources can be used for, which is to motivate historical inquiry, to supply evidence for historical accounts, to convey information about the past, um, and to provide insights into the thoughts and experiences of people in the past. So, so I kind of think if you um, are a history coordinator, I think it's good to kind of Martin Luther and his nailing of the 95 theses, you know, that's what you're going to nail up in front in um, the classrooms of all your um, teachers. So as well as what Neil said, I think, um, like for me, if you can listen to Christine Council speak at all, like, because she always weaves in historical examples, even if it's, even if the topic of the talk's something else, um, 
even if it's not like a specifically history focused talk so like I, the level and the depth of um what she describes just always blows my mind I'm always like thinking oh my goodness I didn't know any of this I need to read everything I can about that now so and just I mean it's fantastic speaking about the curriculum in general but um for ideas about and I think she comes at it maybe a different way because because she's secondary based but I when I've heard her talking about what she's doing with the primary curriculum and the ancient civilizations, that's really changed like my way of thinking about it. I don't think I had a very joined up way of looking at the ancient civilizations before. So like, listening to Christine Council speak about anything would be great. Um, and I've had recommended to me, I on in the geography podcast, I, I mentioned the teaching primary geography book which I have read um, I haven't actually got the the history version but I have had it recommended to me that that's quite good as well so that that would be a good book to yeah I'm, I'm definitely going to get that one um, yeah I think just lots of discussion on Twitter I learn loads from discussing on Twitter yeah I think just like I realize I'm wrong when someone else starts saying oh I can't believe they're doing this and I think oh I didn't know you weren't supposed to so I just think it's like having as much dialogue as you can, which is probably the case for any subject, isn't it? Just trying to learn about things and then talking to people and realising where, because it's the same thing we said in geography, like you don't know what you don't know sometimes to research it, do you? And you think you then when you think you know it is the worst moment because that's the point where you need to be thinking yeah. definitely more to this somewhere. Yeah, that's why I really, I just, um, I, Christine Council always makes me think, oh my goodness, yeah, I've got so much more to learn about this. I, I wouldn't be able to start feeling, um, what's the word? Like, I wouldn't be able to start developing any sort of arrogance about having mastered curriculum development. Because if I, every time, anytime I listen to her, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like, I, in my whole lifetime, I couldn't get to this level. Like, it's just, it's motivating listening to someone who's got that sort of depth of knowledge, I think. Mm. Is hers the opening chapter in the Research Ed curriculum book? Guide to Curriculum? No, she closes it. Closes it. I knew she had one. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it being really interesting and really powerful. Um, and I think she speaks quite a lot of red and some of the sort of more, it's a bread like Cleethorpes and that kind of thing. Um, I can't think she was speaking there recently. So I think there are, there are quite often lots of opportunities to hear her speak. Um, but the, the method of use of Twitter sounds like a really healthy, but not necessarily a common usage, you know, where you're listening to other people's ideas, taking them on board and refining your practice. And sometimes it feels as if the default is to, you know, transmit rather than receive. And I think as you describe the use of Twitter, that's definitely how to get the most out of it. And you know, yeah, I think we have some great history-based discussions on, it's often a lot of debate, I think we often get Michael Tidd involved and um, mm-hmm. and like, we can have these whole long discussions and it's always very pleasant, that's, that's like my favourite thing about Twitter, I love that, like, that's just a nice discussion about reasons and everyone listening to everyone else. And what about subject knowledge? What are your top three sources of rich historical knowledge? <laughs> I do. It's taken me a long time to to um, 
get my head around actually getting the words out today for some reason. Um, now, I think um, for me, probably the main way that I, probably the main thing that I've always done is visiting my historic buildings and museums and things like that. Maybe that's why my history subject knowledge isn't great, because then it, I'm just getting a snapshot of all the local stuff. I don't know like anything that's interesting near wherever I'm on holiday. That's what I'm going to find out about. So uh, and definitely, I think same as with the geography, like knowledge of local history in the area is quite important for selecting those local history studies. So I think visiting all the museums and all the National Trust places in the area, that's going to be good. And I think when I visit places, I'm always thinking about, I, I just read all the information and I'm thinking about how does it link to the curriculum. So like for me, that's one of the main things. I don't know, it just makes me want to learn more. That's one of the main things I do. And reading children's books again, just I read because it's more accessible isn't it in an ideal world you might read all of the adult versions of the but if time-wise you can't necessarily do that so like if you're struggling for time finding like I love the DK eyewitness books just really reading those and thinking before starting to plan something it's probably the main things that I do and actually I was going to say something about Twitter as well Another thing on Twitter that's really good for history is if you follow history specific hashtags or accounts on Twitter, because um, there's things like Hillfort Wednesday, that I've, and it's just interesting anyway, actually. I love that. And then um, I follow lots of Romans account, um, accounts now, and I get all the stuff about they've discovered new mosaics, and there's just lots of interesting news articles if you start following some history stuff on there if they discover, and that, that can be quite good to then use in the curriculum if there's been a new discovery and it links to what you're teaching as well. So it's worth looking at. I don't know how much it is for, I, I've mainly done it for Romans and um, prehistory. There's definitely lots of good stuff to um, follow on, on those um, topics. Nice. Where would you go to, Neil? Or what are your three sources of rich historical knowledge? Cutting it down to three was difficult. So I'm going to not give you three. I'm going to give you more. Um, <laughs> first of all, um, Your Dead to Me podcast with Greg Jenner um, is really, really good. Um, there's Greg, a um, professional historian and a comedian as well. Um, so it's quite lighthearted, but you can get a lot out of it and some you know some really interesting stuff on there and quite a few episodes are quite easy to um, relate to the national curriculum as well so that's a great um, way to go particularly for um, UK history and the history of like the British Isles um, if you YouTube uh, a channel called 10 minute histories it kind of goes through certain periods or certain events in 10 minutes and I think I have spent a whole day just you know that autoplay button was on and before you know it you know, we had got up to something that resembled something relatively modern day. Um, Victoria made me think of this one actually when she mentioned um, Michael Tidd if you you uh, google Michael Tidd cheat sheets when the first curriculum the first curriculum when the 2014 curriculum um Going in the first in its infancy, um, he produced these, which are kind of a rough 
um, springboard starting point for where you want to go. Um, I've mentioned the History Association. Um, I checked the pricing on this one. It's £72 a year for a, a primary school on that. They've got some really good podcasts. Um, they've got um, the mag the primary magazine is really, really useful. Plenty of articles in there. And in the previous, in the geography episode, I talked about how um, you know, some things can behind the second the secondary paywall. And I think a few um, primary colleagues who are as um, enthusiastic, shall we say, about um, primary history, particularly you know, doing it well at key stage two, we threw up a bit of a fuss about all the What's the Wisdom um, podcasts and series being behind the, um, the secondary paywall. Um, so they very kindly um, enabled those, they opened those up to those with the primary subscription as well. Um, for those that are not sure, the What's the Wisdom really looks at what those um, second order concepts of history are. So if, you know, when we're talking about um, evidence change and continuity if you're not sure what those are there's articles about them and there are um podcasts with christine council there just get yourself a membership that's really really good and then links to what um victoria said um i use um the news app on my iphone and every now and then um and you can search for categories that you're interested in so obviously i've got a lot of history um, history one. So in my saved folder, I have article and article and article about various things to do with um, history that relates to the um, curriculum and relates to um, aspects of the history that um, my trust um, teaches. Um, and so I kind of keep those and I will um, screenshot them print them out and either read them or you know kids can access them as well and kind of an area of assessment that I'm kind of interested in when we look at history and how we can assess these kind of foundation subjects is kind of that really simple before and after what do you understand about this article that appears in the you know it's in a newspaper it's not a necessarily a you know history magazine but I know there's been quite a lot of talk about um, Stonehenge recently and how perhaps that um, it was moved from Wales to where it is now so I've got a few articles about that so actually right if I've if I've taught you Iron Age to Stone Age um, sorry wrong way around Stone Age through to the Iron Age um, and I've now given you this newspaper article to read you know I'd like to think that your depth of understanding and the connections perhaps you're making from that is far more um, fruitful than you know it was before I taught you about that. So I think there's quite a nice way you can look at assessment through that as well. So I think what, what's really interesting is that whenever I wrote that question, none of the sources, well, I suppose aside from the historical association, were ones that I would have thought of. So I think that's going to be really useful because you know I think you've got some really unique and you know, inspirational sort of sources of your own inspiration there, you know. Um, so I think that's, re that's really useful. And I, th I, I think that in our discussion of what schools do really well, the features of a high quality curriculum came across um, because they're, they're essentially a large part of what they do really well. So you okay if I move on to the next question? Where we yeah. So in, 
you know, smaller schools who might not necessarily have the capacity or the time enjoyed by their larger counterparts, you know, what can they do with regards to curriculum design? I spent, sorry, Victoria. Oh, okay. Um, and I mean, I, I kind of, I can say what um, we did in my school, which is a one form entry um, to create our curriculum. So basically we just gave over, um, and this is the later phase. I didn't, I wasn't involved in the early phase. And when I joined the school, there'd already been a lot of work going on beforehand. But when I joined, we were just in the process of um, creating our sort of curriculum overview that was explicit about the knowledge we were teaching in each unit. And so the way that we did that was to give over quite a lot of staff meeting time and a couple of inset days to um, letting teachers who had already taught those units um, like summarise what, what did they teach. Um, and I think it's good to start with teachers who have already taught it because you just have more depth of knowledge if you've had to teach it rather than one person having to come at it and research all of that. If the teachers do this, like the, the initial sort of right was by the teachers and then for each subject, one person, like the subject lead then took all of the plans for each year group, looked at the units and fitted them together and then maybe adapted them a little bit um, if they weren't as coherent as they could have been, adjusted some of the content, or I, I just checked it. Does it is it as closely linked to the national curriculum as possible? So I did the history and geography. Um, so I adjusted it a little bit, but it was mainly what what the teachers had written, um, and then looked at the links between the units as well. So that was we managed to do that in one academic year, um, and that's as a small staff. Um, and I think I maybe had one, I might have had one or two days out of class to do it. So it is, I think it is doable for a small school to do something like that um, with all the teachers working together um, and then one person sort of overseeing their subject. Nice. I think that, that's really powerful because you're not speaking hypothetically, you're speaking to your own experience. Um, and you've been very, very, both careful and smart with your time there, you know, and utilized your team, you know, which I'm hundred percent behind, you know, the experience of our, you know, our more wisened colleagues, hundred percent. And yeah, so I think that'll be really useful. Have you anything you want to add? Say there, that wasn't my decision-making. That was Claire leading on that part. I just did the history and geography overview. Uh, yeah. I think I had something very similar, which was dedicate. Um, I think there are two options that you can go. Um, which is to do something, um, as Victoria's mentioned, where you kind of give off, um, give over lots of um, staff meeting time to kind of put these things into place, which absolutely right. Um, I think that was well for some subjects and some subjects I think it probably doesn't need, it, obviously you can do it and it can work well. Whether you need to do that is another option, complete question completely. And I think certainly for some uh, leaders there kind of is a fetishization of bespokeness and it's kind of this buzzword that gets thrown around for curriculum quite a lot you know it needs to be bespoke to our school I see no reason like you are not going to make a study of 
the Maya bespoke to your school if it is in central London. It's pointless. You might have a few, um, bis you know, you, you might be able to get some things in there, some um, local link perhaps to some Romans, but the vast majority of that is not going to be bespoke. You're not going to look at the Romans within a two mile radius of your school and what happened around there for a whole sequence of learning. So I think actually when it comes to history, there is one um, curriculum objective where it talks about um, using you know, the locality. And of course, you know, that one has to be, be bespoke to your locality, although you can get into um, you know, a, a debate perhaps with the geographers about what locality means and how far you have to go from where you are between, before you go out of your locality. And whether you agree with it, whether you don't agree with it on a philosophical level, you know, there are curricula out there that you can buy off the shelf. And as long as you kind of subscribe to, um, well, even if you don't subscribe to the kind of pedagogy that kind of the school that developed that as, you know, um, uses something particularly of, um, you know, Reach Feltman here and their, their history booklets. That they've written which are amazing they're fantastic like the it, it does 95% of the work for you and I think there is that fetishization of bespoke curricula where it has to be oh you know we, it has to be our stamp on it and it needs to be us and you know actually the amount of time that that takes depending on where your staff are what their subject knowledge are you know let's get real here we're all especially now we're all busy, we're all tired, we've all got lots of other things to worry about when we get back in, um, you know, kids are back, just buy it and use it. And then just concentrate your time on that one unit where um, it is about your locality. And then obviously, you know, adapt it for that 5% where you might have a local link to something. But other than that, I think that's certainly something that I think, you know, if you're a small school and you're worried about that, you know, don't worry about it too much. Just use what's there. And that's just one thing that you can, I'm sure there are others. I think Christine Council's, I don't know if they're available to um, buy, but I saw that, you know, Christine Council has written some um, curricular resources for, I think, Haringey um, in okay. North London. So they may, they may, um, they may be available to purchase at a later date. So I'm, I'm not sure, but you know, there are things out there and I think, yeah, school leaders don't worry too much about that bespokeness. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where that's come from, to be honest. So. I was laughing to try and co cover the look on my face when you're saying that. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, do, I agree to a point that there's no point reinventing the wheel. Uh, I don't know if I can go quite as far as saying just buy it personally, but I, even ours that we didn't write everything from scratch, just sort of magicking, magicking, it, magicking it up from our minds. Like we did draw on other resources. Like there's no, you don't have to write everything yourself from scratch. It, there's no point doing that. I definitely agree with that. And I mean, like some resources can be really good. We use some of the CGP history yeah. no actually they're really, really good. good they've got really good sources in one i've used the prehistory one 
and that was it was so helpful and if you can save time like that with those really high quality resources then definitely go for it yeah because they do um i've got one down here they do um active this is a rivers one but they do i think they do activity books as well and for schools they a couple of quid i think for the um actual booklet and the activity books you would maybe this is you know controversial claxon here but i think you know there are probably schools who are doing you could get these for the kids and you know these are the workbooks for the kids and I think, you know, that might be better. That might be a better offer than what some schools are doing by trying to do it um, mm. alone. L- lots of food for thought. Um, do you think it's possible for a curriculum to be overambitious in its aims? Yes. But I would rather start from a place where I've been too ambitious and have to turn it down than um, not be ambitious enough to begin with and then have to ramp it up afterwards is my kind of when I thought about that and I think I've fallen definitely I've fallen guilty of you know some of the curricula that I've looked at again it's that process of you know curriculum is never done it's not just a document that's you know finished once you know you've put that last full stop in I've looked back at some of the things that I've done and I thought probably you know would take that out now or you know I, I wouldn't be to I wouldn't be upset in the slightest if a teacher thought no I don't need to worry about that bit too much but I think it's easier to um, go too far and then cut back than to put a lot of work and then be like oh you know what we didn't go far enough so we need to ramp up the pressure a bit more. That's interesting actually because I didn't initially think about being over ambitious as in putting too much content in but I think you could definitely do that I'm sure I do that but also I think you can when I want to revise things, it's because I haven't been ambitious enough in a way, but not about the amount of content that I'm putting in, but just that maybe I think actually it's more about the disciplinary knowledge for me that I've I learned something about mm. those concepts. And I'm thinking, well, actually, no, although they're learning about that, I didn't include the comparison that there could have been, or I'd missed a link between something. So I think me if I was revising things I'd probably be making it more ambitious but that doesn't necessarily mean mean adding more content in it's just adjusting the way it's taught to teach it better but see when I I, my initial thought about that was it can be too ambitious but I sometimes I think maybe there's an people want to be ambitious and so you can put um, content in that's just way above what you what the children can access without and it, that doesn't mean that they can't understand like um complex content but if you don't actually plan the curriculum to enable them to understand it and you just say oh look my my year sixes are, are so great they're studying this as if just saying the, the title of the topic like the content that they're learning makes it um better somehow And it's not sort of approaching it from a point of view of doing it to look impressive that look at what our year six are learning. It's that your curriculum has really supported their learning so that that when they get to year six, they are actually able to access and understand that content. So I I was kind of thinking yes and no, that some of the, you can enable children to sort of do really impressive things but you have to have actually put the work in to get the children to that point there's no 
point in trying to get them to do something they don't really understand just to make it look ambitious. Um, and then the other thing I thought of was also, I think some people want to challenge their children to the extent that they start teaching things from the secondary curriculum. We're not likely to do as good a job of teaching it as the specialists teaching it in secondary. And, and what's the point of them duplicating things? So I think there's a danger of that as well, that you have to really know what are they actually going to learn at secondary school in this subject and make sure that you don't encroach too far into that. Because to be honest, like the, the bit of history that we have in primary that's sort of fixed that we have to cover is the ancient history, the prehistory, ancient history up to 1066. Well, I mean, there's so much in that you could, you could spend so long teaching that in primary and still not have taught everything that you might want them to know in that in that time period so I don't know why you would then go into things that you know they're going to cover again in secondary. See that's really interesting because um, in a unit that we do we do the history of medicine which is taken like pretty much from um, I think I did it in GCSEs I don't know if it's still in the GCSE spec. I did that in GCSE yeah. And so I'd be interested if in whenever we eventually get our year fives, year fours to do that, um, whether that's going to be beneficial to them or the history teachers are going to be like, oh, you know, this isn't helpful. But um, just to let people know who are listening, the justification for that was because um, I like to use, um, thinking about curriculum history, curriculum design, I like to use kind of thematic um, units to kind of go back and look at the periods that they've already studied, but add kind of a new element to their schema. So we do the history of medicine, I think, towards the end of year four, where we go back, we look at, right, actually, medicine during um, the Stone Age, it was some herbs and like a a witch doctor kind of thing, and a bit of trepanning, which is always an interesting one. And then we go to the Romans and it's all about you know public health and things like that which I think and obviously you can connect that into the prior knowledge of Stone Age Romans etc 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 and I think that works quite well um I never kind of really gave it much thought about whether that's something to leave to GCSE um and I'm kind of sure um some things might be touched upon and some things won't be so just from the my knowledge you know we don't look at we do look at Galen and the four humans but we certainly don't go to like you know the role of the church in like controlling medicine or anything like that we look at you know there were the the four humors and you know and they just thought if they they were out of balance and they'd put a leech on you they thought they had more blood you know a real kind of I don't want to say simplistic because I don't think it's a simplistic thing but a real kind of surface level kind of idea what the stuff is and the hope is actually that you know they will remember or not necessarily remember it but it'll kind of be there in that kind of subconscious memory and so when they come to do that hopefully they take it at GCSC and then they can go oh yeah I remember when we did ABCD and all those kinds of things so yeah I'd be interested I never really thought of it from that whether we're poach I'm poaching too much into uh, secondary territory there. I think, I mean, we do have to do those thematic studies and then go later in, like, that is part of the primary curriculum anyway, isn't it? Like, we, Yeah. There is that element of going later than 1066 with the 
systematic study and developing the sense of chronology. And I, I suppose it, it depends on how does it fit into the history curriculum as a, as a whole, doesn't it? That if you do one thing that they might come back to later in secondary, it's not really a, a big issue, is it? That that's, it's quite good to prepare them for things they're going to learn later anyway. That's probably one of the functions of what, what we're trying to do, isn't it? Is to prepare them for what they're going to learn secondary but if you maybe and I guess it might be academies that could potentially fall into this trap if you want to use the not having to follow the national curriculum and deviate from it a little bit that you could go too heavy on the after 1066 stuff and then there's the danger that you're not actually teaching them the pre-1066 and then I just think but they're not going to get that again in secondary and I know that I've seen some secondary seat teachers on Twitter saying that they're having to add in extra ancient history to their key stage three. Oh, interesting. The children don't have enough knowledge of ancient Greece and Rome to be able to access the, their like, later, what they've got planned for later. So they need to add that in to make sure that they're ready for it. And then I just think, well, if they're having to do that, then... That, that's not right really is it they've got enough to do in key stage three as it is without having to go back and reteach stuff in primary so I think I feel like we should try and focus more on that ancient prehistory and ancient history because I know like there's no way I was going to miss the ancient Greeks even though we've had to like change the curriculum around a little bit because of lockdowns and things that's the only time they're going to learn about ancient Greece and it's really important so you have to really make sure that they've done that really well in primary because they're not going to get it again unless they go on to later classic study i don't have uh i didn't have a preconceived answer in mind but i knew that asking you guys would be really interesting and, and it absolutely was and i think what it did it, it almost illuminated the connections between the different decisions you're making you know almost semi-automatically at the minute and yeah so i think that's really interesting and is there any final piece of advice you would give to anyone you know, like like last time, they were feeling energized about their their geography practice. Any anyone who's buzzing to get in there with history, what, what would your final piece of advice be? Mine were very um, very very similar to um, what I said for geography. I hope my passion for teaching history has come across in this, and so I am exceptionally willing to chat to anyone who wants to talk about primary history curriculum uh, whatsoever at any point. I really do enjoy it. Um, pester SLT for that membership for the um, HA. Make sure you get those magazines. Listen to those um, webinars on what's the wisdom. Just that reminder, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, curriculum is never done. Just because you've written your first one, it's far from over. You're not going to see the benefits of it until kind of that first year that year one of that first year of implementation kind of get through to year six and all the time there there needs to be that amendment um if you are on twitter then i certainly recommend you um follow uh, christine council uh michael fordham mike hill uh stuart tiffany who is a uh, primary um history specialist and ben newmark all the others are um secondary based but they've all been really really helpful in my thinking and have always kind of been willing to um, help me out whenever I've asked questions. Yeah, I and mean, the only thing I, I've probably had is the local thing again, I kind of already mentioned it earlier, but just 
trying to learn a lot about your local history, local to your school. Um, try and visit all of the possible places. Um, and just really enjoy learn. Just really enjoy learning about history. Like I just, I think the more that you research things, the more interested you're going to become. So just really giving a little bit of time to developing your own subject knowledge, make it more enjoyable, although possibly more frustrating because there's so much stuff that I'm interested in. I want to teach all of it to the children. So <laughs> I end up getting frustrated that I can't do that. But I think just try and find those sort of interests, make sure that you're really interested and then the passion will come across when you're teaching. Yeah, and I think if you're not interested, um, fake that interest. <laughs> Mm. I think you can become interested you don't you think you're not interested because you haven't found out the right things yet is what I think I, I used to I probably hadn't really thought about RE at all until I became RE subject lead and I I don't I just didn't really I didn't really know much about other religions at all and as soon as I started finding out more about it I just found it so interesting and I think you can you can develop an interest in subjects yourself by starting to research and looking for the things that are interesting you maybe just haven't found out the right things yet to interest you yeah yeah that's quite a compliment with maths teachers or or primary math specialists you know they'll often say like i know lisa said in in her episode that um she was big into literature when she was younger and then she got the maths and then that was her gone. Now she, she hasn't looked back. So yeah, I think that's um, that's 100% the way to go. And I think um, if Neil, you just tell everybody what you're reading, you know, as, as you change books, you know, because I know that my understanding of antiquity um, has improved just by sort of following your <laughs> recommendations. My, yeah, Map of Knowledge is a wonderful, fantastic uh, book on history. If people uh, wanted a, a, a real kind of meaty history book to uh to read it's um yeah it follows um the story of um kind of galen's medical curriculum ptolemy's the alchemist and uh euclid's uh work in geometry in the help me out here kieran because it's gone again the elements the elements thank you very much um and how kind of when they were written and how they might have been lost and all the translations that they went through and it kind of follows them around seven um seven cities which uh yeah it's it's very good and clearly i need to go back and revisit and you know <laughs> commit it more to my uh long-term memory and there's a few things that i think um victoria brought up which um quite important as well um re there's a very important and very important that when we teach re we do stick to the um the religious element of re obviously but we at the same time, there is a political element, especially when it comes to Christianity and looking at um, Protestantism and Catholicism and the schism that happened there. So, um, for example, um, we do teach the Tudors um, in year five or year six, um, being an academy. And so I think for us, you know, if you're doing that, and you're using those freedoms where you can link your RE to your... Um, uh, history as well so that you know right if they're doing um doing the Tudors and they're focusing on religious change then you know you want them to be really secure in understanding what um you know the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism is because it just gives it much more of a a meaningful um 
you know, it just makes it much more meaningful for them. Um, likewise, I see some schools who do, um, like they focus on like Guy Fawkes in year two, I think. Um, and obviously you can do that. I'm not saying don't do it in year two, um, but just think about, you know, when you think about choice, you know, everything's a choice. There's an opportunity cost to everything. You know, if they have that understanding of the differences between Christian and um, between Catholicism and um, Protestantism first, then, you know, I think it's going to, they're going to get a lot more out of that, I think. So where you can see if you can get those links going together as well. And it, it's been an absolute pleasure guys. And um, I think, people will get so much from both episodes. And I think all I said to say is thank you very much. Um, and hopefully we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.